Would you stand with me as we go to the text this morning? We'll start off with a prayer called Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a prayer of recommitment, so say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We'll be in Ruth chapter 3 today, starting in verse 1. It says this. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where, will, where will you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is our relative of ours. Tonight he will be at a winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a two-part story. And the first part starts in a small gym an hour southeast from here. How many of you have ever been to a school reunion? Show a hand. How many of you have ever been to a school reunion before? My 15-year high school reunion, which seems like a weird number to pick, but my 15-year high school reunion uh, was a couple of years ago. And I went to a small Christian school, so this wasn't a huge event, but the class put on a nice day. And through the power of social media, pictures were shared. I actually want to show you a few of them from the day. They organized a time in the gym, if you take a look there. This is our, this is our gym in high school. We organized a time in the gym in the afternoon where we could bring families so that families could meet each other, kids and things like that. So it was a nice uh, time away from there. Then they planned some out yard, uh, outdoor games, some yard games out where we used to hang out outdoors on the school. And finally, they reserved a private room at a restaurant that night to talk and to reminisce about the days gone by. And, and just it, it seemed like a really nice time. But I don't know because I didn't go. How many of you avoid school reunions like the plague? And I think some of the reason why is because these reunions somehow force you to face yourself, don't, don't they? Everyone's there and remembers you one way, but maybe you don't want to be that person anymore. And it's not like I was a rebellious kid, but I just didn't want to go. And it wasn't because I didn't have the opportunity. It was only an hour away. It was on a wide open Saturday, and it was at my old school, which I could drive to in my sleep. There was no reason for me not to go except for that little voice in that said, 
I don't really want to go to this thing. Because we all have sort of these reunion moments, don't you? Don't we? The person who remembered who you used to be, that group who knows where you came from, or just the old self inside that rears its ugly head and asks once again, who are you? And I just didn't want to face him. I didn't want to face that person. And so I didn't go. Looked nice, looked fun. I didn't go. You see, we all have pasts. We all have history. We all have old selves, right? And the text today is a reunion of sorts because it's going to force us to face ourselves and ask, who are you? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because this is a two-part story. And chapter 3 starts with Naomi seeking a home for you. She says this, I need to find you a home where you will be well provided for. And she concludes that the best option is Boaz, who is a guardian or kingsman redeemer. Now, this idea of kingsman redeemer or guardian redeemer is central to the story of Ruth. And if you've been following along in our tandem series, this is the concept of yibum, which is just fun to say. It's the concept of yibum. And what it is is that in a patriarchal family-oriented culture like this one, the family line was profoundly important. We've talked about this before. It was your livelihood. It was your protection. And it was your land. In fact, write those three down on your, on your card this morning. In a patriarchal family-oriented culture, you needed livelihood, protection, and land. Your family line was all of these things for you. But if a patriarch died early and he had no offspring, then that family line was in jeopardy because without an heir to pass it on to, the legacy would disappear, the livelihood, the protection, the land would all go if there was not an heir that these things could get passed down to to the next generation. So the solution was, is that it was up to one of the men in the family to take on the role of marrying, marrying the, de- the widow of the dead patriarch and to provide a child on his behalf so that his name and all that came with it would not be blotted out, would carry on and continue on. Now, we see different uh, uh, examples of this in the Old Testament, but it was formalized actually in God's law. God actually put it on the books. He said this in Deuteronomy 25. You can see it up here on the screen. It says this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And so God actually puts this on the books. He says, if the patriarch dies and there's no son to carry on the legacy, then some other man from within the family, whether it's a brother or then uh, further on, uh, carrying on that, some extended family, someone from within the family, it's his responsibility to marry that widow, to provide children, and that first son that comes would actually be the son of the brother. And so that son could then carry on the line of the patriarch that had been lost. And all the land and all the protection and all the livelihood that came with it would carry on so that his name would not be blotted out from Israel. 
and men from within the extended family who were eligible to marry the widow were called kingsmen redeemers. So if the situation happened and a family was in jeopardy, they'd say, who are our kingsmen redeemers? Who from within our family is eligible to marry the widow and carry on the dead brother's name? We must find a kingsman or a guardian redeemer. And this is exactly what's happening in Ruth. Elimelech, the patriarch, dies in chapter 1. He has two sons who are going to be the ones to carry on the name, the livelihood, the protection, the land of the family. But the two sons also die, and three widows are left. And the family now is in jeopardy. And since she's a Moabite, one of the widows, Orpah, returns home in hopes of marrying back into the Moab family. But the other Moabite, Ruth, instead of remaining in her homeland and remarrying outside of the family, decides to honor the God of her in-laws and return with Naomi to Bethlehem to see if she can't find a kinsman redeemer inside the family who would marry her and redeem the family name. And so they go back to Bethlehem. And once they arrive, their situation is exactly what you would expect from two widows. In chapter 2, we find that Naomi and Ruth are poor. Ruth is actually collecting uh, grain behind the harvesters of the wheat harvest because that's what you did when you were poor. It's actually a, a law that God prescribed in the Old Testament is that if you were poor, you could go behind the reapers after they had collected everything and any little scraps you could pick up afterwards were free, free game. They were yours. But it was a law designed to help those who did not have a livelihood. And we read in chapter 2 also, Boaz gives, them a specific, gives his men a specific order not to touch Ruth because he knows she's unprotected. She doesn't have a, a network of, of, of people, a network family that would protect her. And so he knows she's vulnerable. She has no protection. And so he orders, specifically orders his men, don't touch her. And then, of course, we get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Naomi's on the brink of selling the land, the family land, because there's no heir to pass it on to. And so she's at the brink of having to sell off everything. This is exactly what you would expect from two widows without a kingsman redeemer. They have been back in Bethlehem for some time, and none of the eligible redeemer bachelors want to take on a poor Moabite woman. They can't find anyone. And so Naomi comes up with a plan. And her plan is actually connected to Ruth's past. Write that in, because we want to remember that. Naomi's plan is connected to Ruth's past. Now, a lot has been made over this plan of Naomi's. So let's take a look at it. Let's read straight from the text and pull out what we need to see. Tonight, she says, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and, more importantly, drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Naomi says this, I want you to get dressed nicely. 
I want you to go and anoint yourself with oil. I want you to wash yourself and then go down in the middle of the night. Don't tell anyone you're there after he's been drinking. Fathers, does this sound good advice for your daughters? But Naomi's not finished. She says, I want you to uncover his feet and lie down. Now, the phrase cover your feet actually was an idiom back in those days. And it meant, of all things, to go to the bathroom. If you were to cover your feet in those days, it meant to go to the bathroom. You'd say, hey, listen, I've had a lot of coffee. I got to go cover my feet. Let me show you an example. <laughs> Not literally. In Judges 3, verse 24, it reads this. Then the king of Moab, interesting connection there, then the king of Moab's servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. Okay? Now, in the NIV it reads, relieving himself, but in the Hebrew it literally means he went in to cover his feet. We actually see this in many different places in the Old Testament. It reads, he covered his feet in the inner room. He didn't want his feet to be seen, so he goes into the inner chambers in order to not be exposed. So, if covering one's feet is to avoid exposure, uncovering one's feet would be to moving on. And the phrase lie down, of course, frequently means a lot more than just sleeping. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when two people lied down together, a child was born. When Naomi tells Ruth to go to Boaz, who is in good spirits, and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do, it doesn't take a genius to know what's going on here. Now, why would Naomi do this? Up until this point, we've kind of seen Naomi as a hero here. What would possess this woman to come up with this plan? Where is she even getting this plan in the first place? Now, I've read a lot of different explanations in an attempt to downplay this scene. Some suggest that it was simply a custom of the day. Some suggest that these things are symbolic for Ruth's humility. Some even praise, praise Ruth for being proactive and encouraging others to be like her in this way. Again, I, I defer to, to the fathers in the room. But that's not what's going on here. This is nothing short of a scandalous, deceptive plan. Naomi is taking matters into her own hands, and she is going to get what she wants. But again, I ask, where does this plan come from? Does this come out of Naomi's head? Is she just thinking these things up? No, what we find is Naomi's plan is connected to Ruth's past. And to understand this story, we have to understand another story that happens at the beginning of the Bible. It's a story that also has a deceptive, seductive scheming to bring about family redemption. It's a story that foreshadows this one. It's a story that has the fingerprints of Ruth all over it. Do you know the story? It's the story of Lot, daughters in Genesis 19. 
Now, in that story, Lot and his daughters come at the tail end of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sees that these cities are very evil and decides to destroy them. Now, Lot is in Sodom at the time and manages to escape to the mountains with his two daughters. And there, the daughters of Lot determine that their family line is in jeopardy. Everybody's gone. And it's now up to them to perpetuate the name. And so they take matters into their own hands. Let's pick up the story here in Genesis 19, starting in verse 31. It says this, One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children, as it was the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine, and then lie with him, and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and laid with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. And the older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites today. You have a family in jeopardy. There are no heirs, no way to carry on the family name. You have two women, two family members, two widows of sorts who recognize the need to preserve the family line. You have a seductive plan involving drinking and lying down. And from this story, you have the birth of a nation, Ruth's nation, the nation of Moab. You see, Naomi's plan's not in a vacuum. She doesn't come up with this off the top of her head. She knows Ruth's story. She knows her daughter-in-law's family history. She knows the legacy of her ancestors. The Moabites had a reputation for this. In fact, later on in Numbers 25, we find the Moabites at it again, seducing men of Israel with promiscuity. Because what do you expect? This is what the Moabites do. This is where they came from. They'll never change. Naomi, in a sense, is saying this, we have a problem and we're going to solve it. Boaz is going to be your kingsman redeemer. And if he won't act, there are ways of getting what we want laterally. Take a page out of your family's playbook. Wash yourself. Anoint yourself with oil. Put a dress on. Go to him at night. Don't tell anyone you're there. After he finishes eating and drinking and when he's in good spirits, uncover his feet, lie down, and he'll take it from there. You see, Ruth has a reputation. Ruth has baggage. The plan is connected to her past. Because she goes along with it. She agrees to it. She says, I'll do whatever you say. It's almost like self-fulfilling prophecy. When you are told who you are, you resign to the box you've been put in. The stage is set for another seductive story. After all, she is the daughter of Moab. What would you expect out of her? Will Ruth live into the family history? Will she take matters into her own hands? Will she seduce the kingsman redeemer? And it happened at midnight. Boaz is startled. And here's this woman sleeping at his feet. He gets up and he asks a question. But it's the question. It's the question we all hear. Who are you? Friends, it's the question. 
It's the moment of truth. And in this very moment, she will face her past and her history and her reputation and her baggage. And in one question, she is asked everything. Who are you? Now, if you stop right there, that's the moment. It's the moment of truth. Ruth has been set up as a hero this whole time, and here we get the climax. And if you were a reader who knows the backstory, you're yelling, Don't do it, Ruth! And Ruth doesn't answer ambiguously, and Ruth doesn't answer deceptively. She answers with truth. I'm not someone important. I'm a servant, but I'm your servant. I am Ruth. I am Ruth. Up until the po- this point, the plan had been connected to her past, but she no longer has to live with the ghosts of them. She no longer has to be placed in a box. She no longer has to be defined by her family history. Because she declared in chapter one, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. You see, when you declare loyalty to God, you are no longer a Moabite. You have a new people, a new family, a new nation. The old is gone and the new is here. And we see before our eyes the transformation of a woman who is asked, who are you? And she declares, I am no longer a Moabite. I have a new people. I am your servant. I am Ruth. If the band would like to come up, let's close here. Friends, are your plans connected to your past? Secrets, tendencies, reputation. Because we all have those reunion moments. The person that remembers who you used to be. That group who knows where you came from. Or just the old self that rears its ugly head and asks again and again, Who are you? Are you that anxious person? Are you that person with no self-control? Are you the person that still hides things in the dark? Are you that person with the destructive tongue? Aren't you that person who doubts? You are, aren't you? You're the Moabite. You are. This is what you do. This is where you come from. You'll never change. But when you declare loyalty to God, you are no longer a Moabite. You have a new people, a new family, a new nation. The old is gone. The new is here. You, are no, you no longer have to live with the ghosts of your past. And you no longer have to be placed in a box. And you no longer have to be defined by your ham- family history because you have been brought into a new one. Your people will be my people now. And your God is now mine. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come.
The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You no longer have to be defined by these things because on the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin and death and brought you into his people and his family and his nation. The old is gone and the new has come. But there's more to say because this is a two-part story. And Ruth answers with truth, but we'll turn the focus on to Boaz next. And she will ask him a question, the question, which will uncover Boaz's own insecurities and history and reputation and ask the question, who are you? You see, friends, this is a two-part story. But we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. God, as we face the first half of this, Things might be bubbling up here in this room. Memories, pasts, things my family have done that I'm still defined by. Or just the old self that rears its head and says, are you that person still? Are you that person with the tongue? Are you that person with the anxiety? Are are you that person with the doubts? Are you that person with that self-destructive tendency? Are you that person that hides secrets in the dark? Are you still a Moabite? And Lord, may we just rest in the promise that you have declared us new through the power of Jesus Christ on that cross and the resurrection that promised new life for us, not just in the life to come, but new life right here and right now. You are my God, and so I am no longer part of that nation anymore. I'm not no longer part of that story any longer. Remind us again, Jesus, that we are a new creation, and we're not defined by our baggage and our past and our reputation and our history. And help us to see in this full story to come how you're bringing everything back and making it new, starting with us. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.